Tales for Ladies. <laughs> for the for the female gaze. <laughs> for the Wait, female gaze. We're trying to with our wording be clear because it's like it's not just women who read female gaze. That's right. But it's kind of the uh... We did find though that the more we say female gaze audio when we meet somebody and say, Oh, we do female gaze they're hearing it as G-A-Y-S, mm. female gaze. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I had a super awkward uh, conversation at a con, and I'm like, well, she, where she's like, well, I am a female gay, and I'm like, wait, what? Oh, God. I'm like, like, well, you're welcome here, yeah, too. Yeah, like, but... we, we love you, but not because of that. What? Not just that. I assume I love you for every part of you, although we've just met. <laughs> I tend to go for femme-friendly, actually, just because of the, the hominin problem, because uh, I've, I've definitely run into that a couple of times as well. So it's funny because, like, you write it out and it's so clear. Um, but, yeah, in, in conversation, that's not the best approach. Or it's, it's not the optimal approach for describing. I mean, based on our short stories that we've been doing, there's a lot of <laughs> yeah, female gays. Yeah, quite a few female gays in our lineup. On, on the sparkler side. The great thing is, though, there's a word for that, and the word is lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> or queer. I, I do like... I like so. so attending this podcast is Lillian... Our comics editor. Hello. Leanne. Hey. Our prose editor. Rebecca. Hi. Our audio editor. And me, Jill. General stuff. She's CFO. She <laughs> handles our money. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually our this is our core editorial team this week. We don't have uh, extended staff or any creators with us. Partially because some people didn't answer their emails. So, <laughs> so they gonna... miss out on the fun yeah. smut. <laughs> if you hear us now, email your editor, guys. <laughs> We'd like to incorporate more, and people have been requesting that, too, that we'd like to have more creators on, like we had Jen Quick on the last podcast, um, depending on sort of the topic, because it's great to have them come on and talk about their work, but one of the great things about many of the creators we hire is they're just really creative, industrious, uh, experienced people, and we talk about you know greater trends in the industry or process work, not just on this particular work, you know, but maybe on all the fan fiction they write on the side of whatever mm. their ser- their sparkler serial is. This one though is a little bit more of an industry analytical thing, which I, I think that because we've all been editors for so long, we might be able to be a little bit more general about it because romance and love stories within this femme friendly atmosphere the foundational western area for that is uh, romance novels that's like the big industry the industry that is like recession proof <laughs> the industry that moves forward with technology like the first big industry that kind of was really Dude, ebook friendly yeah, yeah it's also a weirdly quiet industry in terms of the mainstream like people i wouldn't just say quiet i would say it's actively denigrated by the mainstream <laughs> yeah actively yeah Ignored and scorned. I feel like there's, there's a lot fair. of like scorn that's heaped on it, which is completely unjustified. So, well, we're, we're going to just use romance novels as a place to start because obviously we want to talk about a lot more than that. But um, for anyone who's like, I don't really know about romance novels, or I made you know read them out loud and laughed about them when I was in middle school, or whatever the case. <laughs> we did that. Yeah, we did that, sure. Um, I would recommend Beyond Heaving Bosoms which is like the romance novel reader um, put out by the Smart Bitches Trashy Books uh, blog, which is a fantastic blog about um, romance novels. What's the other ones? Jill's a really big romance novel reader. Yeah, um, Dear Author is another big one that's really good. They do a lot of reviews. They have a lot of really interesting industry news, um, author news, everything. It's great. I don't know if they have a book. 
they might have one out, but Beyond Heaving, Heaving Bosoms is definitely the big one. Oh, it's so funny. <laughs> there's a, there's actually a lot of really good romance blogs. There's a mm-hmm. few run by groups of authors that are really interesting, like historical ones, and they do like historical, you know, notes on historical facts or whatever that they found. I don't know. Word wenches is a big one. <laughs> yeah. See, a lot of these are kind of tongue in cheek because. Yes. Well, you have to have a, a sense of humor when you work for an industry that is incredibly successful and yet is almost shameful. Yeah. It used to be more shameful. I think now readers, authors, editors, they're a lot more proud to say what they are. But it used to be that you didn't want to ride the subway and have one of those clinch covers showing. Well, and as much as I don't want to talk about Fifty Shades of Grey, um, that. <laughs> Yet here we are. <laughs> Almost immediately. Come on. <laughs> the fact that that was so humongous. And, um, you know, they obviously used a different sort of cover for that, which was a big part of the marketing scheme, right? That mm-hmm. It's not that those kinds of covers, the, like, subtle, there's, like, a man's tie on a dark table. Yeah. Not that those haven't been used before, but for that kind of novel, written like a 15-year-old wrote it, and, like, super tropey. Well, it's and... like Twilight. They had nice covers. That's true. And that really, like, the interesting thing about Twilight is it really goes against, of, against a lot of YA cover convention, which is yeah. you want to photograph a human being, like, their face. Like, even illustrated YA novel covers often don't sell as well. So the fact that they went for something so stylized for that and so kind of simple-looking, that's actually a really interesting choice. So I mean, romance um, has surprising. been taken away from the old style. Embrace, <laughs> shirtless Viking. Shirtless Viking embracing yeah. a woman that has a flowing right. tresses and everything <laughs> on the ground. But um, yeah. yeah, it's still there. It's interesting to see the trends. On the blogs, sometimes they'll do cover things and they'll talk about the trend of like headless women. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, they'll show just a dress. Mm-hmm. They'll have the headless guys too. They'll have like the... Uh, just the torso. The, shirt, yes. the shirtless guy who kind of has a tan and he's yeah. got like buckskin pants. Yeah, I'm pretty and, sure it's the same body with like they just oh, put like Photoshop different. There's some like tumblers that are really hilarious. They like find oh my god, WTF yeah. romance novel yes. covers. Oh, WTF bad, bad romance, romance covers, covers too. Really I think great. there's one of that. There's probably yeah, a couple right. of them because there, there's so many to there's, choose yeah. from. Terrible it's, it's romance great. novel covers. It's interesting actually. I've got a friend out here who uh, she reads a lot of urban fantasy, which crosses over heavily into the side of the romance genre or the romance industry. And one of the books that she lent me, it's about like a vampire hunter or something, but it has like the most chiclet looking cover that I've ever seen where it's like a headless woman in like white pants and like white stiletto heels sort of lounging on like a white couch or something. And I'm like, I would not guess that this was a movie about <laughs> vampires. There's something about the high heels. <laughs> it's like it's on every one of those covers. They're like ladies. And it's like, who wears white if you're going to kill shit? <laughs> So I thought that that was interesting because I was like, you could sit there and read that book in public and, you know, it didn't really look like a romance novel, but it didn't really look like urban fantasy either. And I was kind of, I was interested by sort of the under, even like the title design didn't really look like what I would expect from either of those two genres. So I was, I was really intrigued by yeah, I think the they packaging to, for that. Different strategies, right? Like, I mean, people make fun of the old style covers and even the Harlequins that have like the the crazy names that Virgin Mistress, Greek Greek Millionaire, Billionaire, Secret Baby. But it's like different strategies because there is a obviously huge market of romance readers that know what they want and they know they want to know before they buy that this is what I am getting. Mm -hmm. So for that segment, and it's a huge segment, very profitable. That's what you 
do. And, you know, it's interesting because I can kind of I can really see the connection there with the way people tag fan fiction. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, it's again like you want to know that, you know that your, character your A things. and character B are going to get together and it's yeah. going to be fluffy or it's going to be mm-hmm. angsty and Her you know. Yeah, yeah. Before you even start reading it, you know kind of yeah. what you're getting into. It's almost like fan fiction tags be- mm. before fanfiction.net. Well, and, and it's <laughs> right. funny because like when we first started this company and, and throughout, we're constantly looking for other. When people say, how could you explain your company in one sentence? I'm like, oh, what publisher is closest to us? We actually have a lot in common with, like, Harlequin. I don't know if they mm-hmm. still do this. Besides the fact that Harlequin went super digital in a way that a lot of other publishing... Co- like, the romance novels went ebooks mm-hmm. faster mm-hmm. because it's considered a little bit more disposable entertainment, mm-hmm. so the girls didn't need to have their books of the romance novels because they just... They read in the tub and they toss it. Yeah. And if you ever go to a used bookstore, romance is a humongous mm-hmm. section because those are not usually things that you keep necessarily. They're like mass market yeah. paperbacks, but even more tropey, and you're kind of... Mm-hmm. There are consistent writers, but you're also just, like, you'll, like want a line of them there. Like, oh, these are all the urban, uh, yeah. sorry, the romantic mm-hmm. suspense ones, or these are all the historical. Uh, also, Harlequin, you used to be able to subscribe to Harlequin yep. to one of their lines. So they would have, like... Five the, a month. Yeah, so you'd basically be like, so this is the romantic suspense line, this is the, the Christian friendly line. This is the, you know, mm-hmm. uh, my favorite was Temptation, which no longer exists, which was like 20 and 30 something working women who are like, I don't need love. And then they find some coworker. They're like, just one night and I won't fall for you. And they were always like sarcastic and had to like work life balance. And I liked those. That line is gone. It got merged with a couple other ones. But you'd be like, okay, I like this particular kind of love story. And then you would subscribe to it. You'd pay them like 20 bucks a month or whatever. And they'd send you these like paperbacks yeah. that retail and then they for like $3. All are pretty reliable on hitting your... What They're incredibly them, formulaic. Yeah. Incredibly. But you know how everybody has their things that they like. Well, mm. kink, but it's kink makes really it sound kink. more like, extreme than yeah, it is. Yeah, it's like your... Your tendency, your, your, your fetishes. Your favorite I tropes. Know. Tropes, yeah. 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 So as a result, it would be like in the same way that we... Sparkler is supposed to be reaching a particular kind of audience that we're giving you stuff that you don't... Some of these creators are brand new. You know, the genres are... Well, it's a little different because we don't do it so genre-locked. But basically, we're trying to say, hey, if you like one thing in Sparkler, you'll probably like the other things in Sparkler too because even though they're pretty different they're supposed to be appealing to the same kind of person Mm. and that you know you subscribe and you'll get these three stories a month or whatever sight unseen and you'll probably like the majority of them we actually have a lot in common with them in that sense but (laughs) it's interesting because the first book that we had that was most of our books have very little in common with romance novels because we're a lot more geek inspired our stuff's a little bit more sci-fi fantasy kind of leaning supernatural urban fantasy gauntlet was had a lot more in common with romance novels than the other ones. And we were trying to sort of, we were reaching out to the romance novel industry a little bit and readers, and it's just, it's kind of tricky because they are so formulaic and that's kind of why people go to them. Not that the people who read romance novels only Mm -hmm. want formulaic stuff, but that when they get a romance novel... They expect. Yeah, there's a certain expectation there of it's going to fall into a certain line because they subscribe to this kind of romance novel. Mm Um, so it was a little bit tricky. It kind of remains to be seen. Obviously, Gauntlet is coming out in paperback, like, in a matter of weeks. So it's a very new book. But we find the romance novel industry because it is, like, run by women. Mm-hmm. The majority of the authors are women. The vast majority of the readers are women. Men who write in the romance novel industry often take female pen names. I mean, this is a woman-dominated sphere of, quite frankly, porn. A lot of it is, like, there are varying degrees. Like, you can get the Christian-friendly ones. They're they not allowed to kiss on Sundays and stuff. <laughs> like, there are particular tropes that they have to follow within that. But, like, some of them get, you know, oh, pretty yeah. graphic. And the number of women I know, at least in the West, who learned about sex from romance novels because they weren't, even though they were considered kind of shameful, people, I think a lot of people write off romance novels not understanding that there's kind of a lot of sex in some of them. And kids were getting them. <laughs> And they'd be like, oh, you don't want to read that oh, trash. You're, you're reading a book. Yeah, like, it's <laughs> so great that you're reading. 
Yeah, it's like stealth erotica for a lot of young girls. Now, that's probably changing since the internet has made porn just easier for everyone to get all the time. But back when we were young, that was sort of like you could learn about sex from these things. And I know kind of a lot of girls who did. Even if they were laughing about it, like in retrospect, and they go back, they're like, yeah, I kind of learned, you know, either that or like I learned about sex from dirty fan fiction when I was like a teenager. And I think that's where a lot of kids are learning it now from too. Is like For me, it was Clan of the Cave Bear. I oh, you know what? A too. lot of girls learned about yeah. Oh my God. Of, is that, terrible. that is full of rape yeah. too. It's like, caveman rape. My God. Well, Oh, okay, no, you're right. Clay of the Cave Bear is full of rape. The sequels are not full of rape. The sequels oh, when she kind okay. of like comes into her own and, and goes out and, you know, becomes a strong, independent, pro-Magnon woman. There, there's a whole lot of like female power thing that kicks in. And it's, it's actually one of the big differences between like the Neanderthal culture and the evolving human culture is Neanderthals are very patriarchal. So, <laughs> but anyway... <laughs> Yeah, so I read those in, like, seventh grade and then promptly, like, described them in detail to my friend circle at the time. So I I was sort of, like, the sex ed, I don't know, proselytizer. Because God knows that public school education didn't do jack shit on that front. Yeah, they'll give you the basics, but I think one thing about erotica that, I mean, now we're really going back talking about formation of sexuality through media, but it's, you know, it's relevant here. There are a lot of kids who know the mechanics of sex, they know whatever they learned in school, whatever maybe their parents, they also learned whatever their friends tell them, which... Almost everybody knows from a young age to take with a giant grain of salt. But there's something about, like, especially something like prose, like erotica, where it usually has a pretty firm perspective and it's like emotive and stuff, where people learn, they get sex through that. They understand the connection between the mechanics and the emotion or where it falls in an overbranching story, the way that it would, you know, because people don't just... Or a relationship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, sex doesn't happen in a vacuum in real life, just like it doesn't usually happen in a vacuum in stories written for women. Because, mm-hmm. like, stuff written for men, yeah, they'll just have... And then yeah. they show a scene of him banging some girls so you can see how masculine he is. Mm-hmm. But you don't <laughs> see that nearly as much in female gaze. It fits in the... It has context. It has context, and that's partially what I think women like. That's And I think the other thing is, is the emphasis on female pleasure, too. So even if you know the mechanics of sex through sex ed, it's yeah. like... There's P and the V, and you have to use condoms and blah blah blah. But like, did they ever talk about the clitoris? Probably not. Yeah. Um, Let alone anything. Did they ever not... talk about female masturbation? Probably not. Yeah. That that is where I think that media of various kinds, fem-oriented media, that yeah. that's really the gap that gets filled. Oh yeah, so. and they're so heteronormative. Like, right. like new, um, right. like new waves of romance novels are playing with sexuality more. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a while. <laughs> Surprisingly, but I think it might also have to do with not just like the fact that gay rights have moved a lot in mm-hmm. 10 years and in terms of like exposure, but I think also the demographic who reads romance novels do tend to be very straight. They have the stereotype mm-hmm. of like the frustrated housewife kind of thing, which is not odd. You know, they say like something mm-hmm. like one in five people in America owns a romance novel, not one in five women, like one in five right. people. Like it's mm-hmm. a huge market right. segment, but at the same time, it's like that demographic sometimes you have a demographic that is like how Shonen Jump works right Shonen Jump is for boys obviously it's not just like teenage boys reading or even like <laughs> middle not school anymore. boys that reading that would be Shonen Jump well it's be Shonen <laughs> oh, except that they're they're swinging back in the other direction again oh, yeah. they're stop, stopping doing as much like sports stuff kind of adventure stuff because they know that that's what the girls are reading because they can slash it and they're switching to like boy oriented romance so, oh, are they really? The kind of fancers. Yeah, no, there's like an active editorial directive on that, apparently. Ah. Like, that's what I've heard. Is it Moe, so. like, romance? Not, no, it's not really Moe, but it's it's sort of like the, the fancer, oh, like fairy tale and boys stuff? romance type No, no that's stuff, an adventure so. series. He's just really into bondage, and you can tell. So in the same way that, I, like, when you talk about female pleasure and stuff, too, and, and, and more sexuality and stuff, the way romance novel is, 
like the female pleasure itself being more focused before it even got you know was even looking outside of heteronormativity once you understand your own body you can apply that to more things <laughs> like it's more queer friendly if at the very least you understand more about how the vagina works and i understand why in sex ed in school they don't teach you that much about pleasure and female pleasure because they don't want you to have sex well, so, their parents. Well, yeah, they, they right. don't like. They're hoping that if you do happen to have sex, you do it safely, and it's so bad that you don't do it again. And like, <laughs> wow, that's a recipe for a healthy, healthy well, sexuality. <laughs> but it's like at the cost of. It's fucked up, but I, I kind of get it because they're also like, please, 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 don't have sex. Like, please, that doesn't work. It doesn't work. Please don't get yeah. pregnant. Please don't get weird yeah. diseases. So anyway, the, before we went into the details of this, <laughs> that was sort of like I think romance novels have always been a place where women learn about sexuality from a young age and I think that's why also I mean you talk about women coming into puberty learning their own bodies there's always been shame there right there's always this undercurrent of shame this you know version in the whore dichotomy and all this garbage which thankfully I feel like we're shedding more over time and that I think has been stuck like glue to the romance novel industry but it's it, better yeah and they're expanding yeah, yeah I mean they're they are in tune to what women want so mm-hmm. they change as women change yeah. and they change as society change and it's this Again, huge industry that people don't really talk about, but is so femme-friendly and and interesting. So we're always looking at the romance novel industry for sort of ideas. One of our um, regular copy editors, Ashley Hisson, um, works for Harlequin and kind of keeps us up to date with some of this stuff where she's like, oh, you know, she tells me about all the freaky sex stuff that starts showing up in some of these lines. I'm like, really? They're doing that in romance novels now? You know, because it's, it's changing, especially, she said, I think she said that the ebook departments, they're getting mm-hmm. way more edgy. Well, because it's, like, it started, too, mm-hmm. uh, not with Harlequin, but with more independent publishers like Allura's Cave, even though that has some issues now, whatever. But mm-hmm. when ebooks started being a thing, mm-hmm. you know, small publishers like Sparkler, or like Chromatic, were like, oh, we can do this for... And we can actually distribute books in a way that doesn't make us, you know, we don't have to buy 100,000 books to send yeah. to like 100,000 a a stores across the states. Yeah. So they would, yeah, they and they started doing erotica and that worked out well for them. So they mm-hmm. kept doing it and they kept trying new things. Well, the internet is for porn, as we right. know. And there's also that connection there that people are like, oh, I'm buying it over the internet. No one has to know or yeah. I don't have to go buy it in a store and mm-hmm. get a brown bag. Although, again, like, the covers, there's a understanding about some of these covers that, like, you know, sometimes they'll do the headless torso and sometimes mm-hmm. they'll do the embrace and sometimes they'll do, as we discussed, these other types of covers. Abstract. Abstract, yeah. And I think that the heaving bosom looking thing where it's like a pirate leaning over a girl in some yeah. big dress... Every, those are so common that people don't think twice about them anymore. They're like a joke, but mm-hmm. people aren't like making that connection to she's reading a really hot sex scene on this train yeah. and just kind of like furrowing her brow. Like, yeah. <laughs> there was a really great article about that on Cracked a long time ago where they were like, female arousal just looks different from male arousal. And they showed like a, like a lady sitting on a chair at the beach just reading a romance novel with a furrowed brow. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they don't, it's just like, oh, I'm going to read some porn on the train and no one will know. I mean, women are stealth horny, which I think almost all women who listen to this can probably understand about, like, the fanfics they have on their phone and they're just like, it's there, people aren't going to know and Mm -hmm. it's not in a format that we recognize. We are so male-centric when it comes to porn in the West. I mean, like, just the live-action porn industry aside, which is so male-centric, it's almost ridiculous. We don't think about women and porn almost at all. It's mm-hmm. like we don't make that connection there. Fifty Shades of Grey, again, coming up again, even though I don't really want to talk about this book. In terms of the industry, that was a really important book because all like my father was like, did you hear 
there's sex in those books? And I was like, oh my god. And then he's like, did you hear that sales of whips went up around the country when this book? And I'm like, oh my god. Like, all of a sudden people were like, dude, it's porn. Dude, it's porn. Every woman was riding on the train. Every single woman in that car was reading that. They were all reading porn around me. They didn't realize that. Yeah. They've been doing this forever. You just didn't realize. So we talk about love stories written for women. This ties into both love stories and erotica. Um, Context is always the word that I use for this. Because I think women, they need a story. They need a, a place for it. And I don't just mean they're like, women aren't into gonzo porn, which is just, you know, one guy walks into a room, a girl is there, and they have sex. Like, it's not that women, or, again, we're talking femme-friendly, we're not just talking about women, although women are the, you know, sort of broader group we're talking about. It's not that none of them like gonzo, but it's just not the, it doesn't, it's not the stuff that does the best Mm -hmm. in that demographic. And I'm not even talking about, like, you need, there's a little reason why they're there, they get, you know, like, you don't need some sort of epic love story that's got one sex scene in the end. You just need to give it some kind of a context. And a really good example of this is, like, when you see some of this porn that's made for women, a lot of the time they're in period dress. And there's not really much of a story there. They're just in period dresses. And you see things like pinups for written for women and stuff. They're not usually in some sort of weird apparatus. Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, if you see male pinups, it's just girls in this the same three poses, you know, like, yeah. knees are open. Or, you know, you're, turn, you're leaning over and you have a hand covering your breast. You know, like, there's, like, the three poses for, like, sexy women. As opposed to, like, when you see pinups for... Yeah, she do sexy with air quotes. I mean, again, it's not marketed to us. Um, and also, it's not even necessarily what's tied into this male sex drive so much as what the industry is selling as its packaging, oh, that the coding for what is sexy time. With so. comics, it's all just, like, how big can I make certain individual body parts on this person? Oh, God. So, uh, yeah, there's something about Western male, like, comics porn that is just, like... How big can I make wow. all the Asians and, and Japanese? I mean, you know, I love One Piece now, but when I first started, I was like, "What the fuck is up?" with Hentai is weird about giant bodies. genitals. They like well, genitals, yeah, but even just like boobs. But it, it transfers to the gay stuff too, because I was I was bagging all of like the the one of my uh, sort of tests at my old comic store job. They were like, "We're gonna give her the gay porn to bag and see if she comments." And my comment was. That's like a thermos. What's even happening here? (laughs) It's just, how big can we make certain parts of anatomy? Mm. Creepy Japanese, like, oozing labia in, like, the... Oh, God. (laughs) Don't listen to this at work, guys. Yeah. (laughs) We mentioned it before. Maybe we should add a warning before we start talking. I'm sorry. We can talk about female gaze porn because it's way less gross. Yeah. Well, and also, okay, we think it's in gross. different ways. Yeah. Because we can... Okay, I'll go into that yeah. in a second. Yeah. So, when they... So, again, when we have context. So, you see pose, uh, pinups for women and stuff. They'll just put, like, a period wear on someone. Or it's, like, he's dressed, like, wearing a suit. And, like... So, the, I saw a really good example one where it was, like, here is a man in a really nice suit. And it's a series of photos of him slowly taking off the suit. Mm. Like, it doesn't even have to be much context. It just can't be, like, here, naked guy. Yeah. That they're like, well, who's this naked guy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, and I don't want to tie it too closely to this, but, like, naked guys expose themselves to women on the subway a lot of the time, <laughs> and, like, this isn't not necessarily something that they, like, again, this kind of, like, gonzo-esque stuff, the sudden exposure, the, the mm. things, that's tailored for men, and a lot of the time women, quite frankly, can find that a little threatening, or just, it's tied to all these other things that I think have baggage and it just doesn't, baggage and doesn't interest them, 
whatever. So a little bit of context can go a long way with women, which means that also a lot of context, like the way like love stories do well with women, you know, like a lot of the shoujo and stuff that we read out of Japan, the story is not necessarily, the plot isn't totally around the love story, but the love story is deeply integrated into the development, you know, like a lot of them are, it might be a sci-fi, it might be a fantasy, it might be, you know, in space, underground, in the water, whatever. But usually (laughs) love and sex is really deeply ingrained in there and not in the sense that like, oh, at the end you win the handsome boy. Mm -hmm. Or, oh, in the beginning you get to bang all these handsome boys to show how cool you are or how how much the men love you. It's like, it's, it's part of the character development. It's part of the, you know, it's ingrained, all this context. And so then when you talk about extreme, like extremes, when people are going for really high fetish levels, um, there's less and less content. So the equivalent of gonzo porn for women and stuff, they don't necessarily do like the big body parts. Like let's try and over, you know, let's, let's try and out body part each other. They'll do how fucked up is the relationship. So it's yeah. like, now we're getting into emotion. incest. It's like mm-hmm. emotion yeah. fetish. Yeah, it's like extreme emotional duress, you know, or... I mean, incest is the obvious answer. There's a lot of those. Uh, you'll see them in the... the... But also, like, uh, this yeah. guy is really hurt. How Her good do I have to be before he will trust me? Yeah. It's like the guy that bites you in Queen Bee, you know? Yeah, I played one of her dating sims, and there was some dude who ate me, and I got that's a bad ending. And, not, and that's not a euphemism. That's like, more like... Ate, like a cannibal. Yeah, yeah that was a bad sim. ending, though. <laughs> Clearly it was a bad ending. <laughs> I was eaten at the end. <laughs> but yeah, no, and this is this is definitely where the uh, the uh, rape fantasy stuff comes yeah. in too, which Well, you know it's yeah. interesting because rape fantasies were they've been around for a long time and in some ways it's an old trope or whatever yeah. that was in romance novels a lot. Oh god, like somebody's romance novels. Yeah, Ooh, a lot yes. of it. And it, you know, I've heard a lot of academic like I think it's fairly accepted that part of it was to get rid of the shame of wanting yeah. sex because yeah. women weren't supposed to want sex they weren't understood yeah. as having a sex drive so yeah. you know what how are you but how am I going to get yeah. these feelings taken mm-hmm. care of well if it's not my choice then it's not my fault mm-hmm. yeah there, there was a big trend of that and then there was also I've read pretty good arguments that like bodice ripper which is a certain genre of romance novel which is they call it bodice ripper because it's like historical romances with, and a lot of them were rape fantasies and they were women who started to feel guilty for wanting rape fantasies, which was supposed to alleviate their guilt in the first place. Uh-huh. So they made it historical of being like, well, back then, yeah. women weren't asked for consent ever. It was just you were married off like chattel or whatever. There is, this you're going to hear this a lot, there is so much tied into guilt and shame and how we sell or don't sell sex to women. Because there's always, you know, at least in you know recent memory, talking like, you know, Western last 50 years or so, uh, more than 50 years, <laughs> um, just this female desire is bad female desire you know like the witches right like that lady has red hair and i want her therefore she's cast a spell on me and she was like doing her job she's like what are you doing why am i being burned at the stake you know like there's such a huge thing about women desire is terrifying to the patriarchy and women are taught to like crush it or be ashamed of it or whatever and it extends now and i think that one thing that we've noticed with sparkler which was a little bit of a surprise is that there were a lot of people who were like does this story have a straight romance in it then i'm not interested i only want queer romance and these were not just queer kids, because, I mean, obviously, there's, you know, <laughs> people were like, hey, I would like queer representation. Yeah, there's there's a lot of legit reasons why, yeah, that additional representation is desirable. Oh, but, yeah. But this yeah. was also people who didn't identify as queer at all, who are like, I just yeah. don't want to read about men and women getting it on. Because there is a lot of baggage there. There's, yeah. um, you know, first of all, you have sort of the mainstream heteronormative stuff, male gaze, like again g-a-z-e stuff like james bond where women are like almost disposable Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways 
and they. I wouldn't say almost. I yeah, say the, the, the newer ones are a lot better. The Daniel Craig ones. Uh, they're they're better than like the Sean Connery ones. I mean, I'm not saying that they're super progressive and feminist, but I like Quantum of Solace kind of a lot. But there's anyway. still a new girl in every one. There is, but you know, I don't think having a different beautiful woman in each movie. And there's is, still women die on the road. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Like, there are worse whatever. representations out there than <laughs> the newest Bond girls. You know, plus they had Judy Dench mm-hmm. in them to balance some things out. <laughs> So this is tied into, like, straight romance has baggage that comes from the non-female gaze size that was always heteronormative. And then also, like, romance novels, which are super tropey. And even though they... they, No, romance novels adapt with women and women's place in society and what women want. It's still pretty mainstream. It's still slow. Yeah, it's slow. I'd say that, like, because of the appeal of romance novels is to some extent the formula, you don't want to shed too much from that formula. So there's still that kind of like you're aiming for a happy ending, you're aiming you're aiming for sort of marriage and family, and that it's tough to kind of break out of that. Yeah, exactly. Because that's that's inherently part of the appeal of the genre. Yeah. yeah. So uh, and so if you're not interested in that, and if if you're kind of I don't want to say beyond that because that makes it sound regressive in a way that it's not necessarily. But if if you're looking for a different kind of narrative, you're not necessarily going to find it there. Yeah. Just because of the nature of how that industry works. Yeah. But when we took sort of straight couples outside of the state, you know, all of the standards and put them in, you know, what we'd consider a sparkler package, which is a little bit more out there. We try to get stuff that's kind of pretty alternative. It was people were just still overwhelmingly wanted queer stories. No matter who they were, how they mm-hmm. identified, they were like, queer stories appeal to me. Period. Like, that I only want to read queer romance. Um, which doesn't, like, we expected that to a point, because, like, queer romance is, like, a really great alternative, you know, like, it's, it's I would say it's almost a renaissance of queer romance right now in alt-publishing. Um, a lot of great creators out there doing it. Obviously, in Japan, boys' love is, like, humongous. It's kind of like, there's this big movement that this is some of the great stuff, and people are like, oh, I really like this genre, I want to read more. But we're also seeing that it seems like people, th- there's a lot of baggage to shed there that, even more strong than we thought, that people are like, straight romance literally makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter who they are, even if they had a straight romance in their real life, it was like the way it was depicted in fiction made them uncomfortable because there's a lot to get rid of there. And even like, we love Shoujo and Jose from Japan, right? That shit's problematic as hell nine times out of ten. I mean, of course it is. Mainstream stuff is gotta push forward past that stuff. And a lot of queer romance does not have the same baggage there. There, Like, like, by definition, it cannot have the same rigid gender rules because you've got two people of the same gender who have to be different from each other in some way. Whereas, like, when you've got a guy and a girl, Mm -hmm. she starts falling into a lot of feminine tropes, he starts falling into a lot of masculine tropes, a lot of those tropes are kind of gross in a lot of ways, or at the very least, even if they're kind of meant well, they're still stereotypes. Yeah. And you see that also in, like, Boys Love Slash Yaoi out of Japan, there were mm-hmm. problematic and, and also just really limiting trends mm-hmm. in older stuff. You look at Boys Love from the 80s to the 90s to the 2000s um, to 2010+, plus, and it almost seems like they adapt a little bit faster, too. Because, again, you're not breaking free of something that's super old. The Fabulous 49ers, although, granted, that it sort of did spawn at the same time that modern shoujo did. Mm-hmm. But it's like, I guess because they're not... For whatever reason, the problematic stuff that you see in Yaoi and Boys Love, like in terms of especially gender role, like there's a really girly one and there's a really masculine one, you started them seeing them shed that around, like, the 90s. And, like, they still have a huge problem with consent. Like... Boys' love is just... The, the biggest issue that they just can't seem to get rid of is, like, consent is... It's not valued. <laughs> Rape is so common, maybe even more than in shoujo, which is really saying something. And I I think... I don't know. Again, there are a lot of reasons why rape has a long tradition in the um, femme-friendly stuff. 
Uh, and there's even more layered issues there when you have... I, I do think there's a certain degree of revenge objectification that we call it, where it's like some women read this stuff that's really dark and they want to get some feelings out, but they don't want to see that violence on a woman's body. It's easier for them to mm. see if it's not on a woman's body because it's too close to real fears they have in real life. So you can get the more extreme rape fantasies when there's not a female body in there to be receiving it. I mean... Mm complicated right like there are scholars who have gone through this in way better times than we could possibly go through here but it is a little depressing (laughs) Mm -hmm. so these are kind of things that we're looking at and we're really i mean we have a lot of great queer stories that are running right now we're really happy to have them we were just kind of seeing like what's the kind of we're still experimenting with sort of the straight love stories that seem to appeal to our particular (laughs) demographic which is all the exploratory celebrated and enjoyed stuff is all queer and it's like how does what's the straight straight equivalent of that that would appeal to that same audience (laughs) we've got like a really weird tragic story that people seem to like pretty well and then uh which one oh wait oh yeah yeah i guess that one yeah that yeah that well that had really mixed sex like the main oh, yeah, couple well, on that was straight but. yeah the sexuality in that is really mixed and, and the closest that there is to a happy couple is gay but i mean they're not even, happy, happy is a yeah. really strong word for it <laughs> semi-stable i guess <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I think ensemble casts are usually the way to handle this the best. We do that in Tokyo Demons as well. There's a lot of different yeah, kinds and, of Yeah, and oh my god, there. but bisexual love triangles are the greatest thing in the entire universe. Oh, like, <laughs> like I'm sorry, I don't want to be frivolous with anyone's sexuality, but just from a pure storytelling point yeah. of view, fewer characters, more complications always makes it better. Oh yeah, and also just like unlabeled sexuality yeah. where it's like you don't really... What I love is when you don't know someone's sexuality. And there's always like... <laughs> certain assumptions that some because some yeah. people are like hello my name is blah 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 my sexuality is blah 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 not everybody does that but mm-hmm. there are definitely people who yeah, do that yeah there are people who kind of wear it on their sleeve and yeah you know. and especially in story conventions that they'll mm-hmm. find a way to squeeze it in like oh he's gay or mm-hmm. whatever but I really like these stories where you can get pretty far in a love story before you really discover what it is that somebody wants mm-hmm. or that I love mixed signals I love kind of like well, you know sometimes they never do like that's one thing that I think I'm not sure why but Japan Japanese media does fairly well like they go for a lot of um, not androgynous but like you're not sure what their sexuality preferences are you might not even know if they're um, their gender for a long long time in a story yeah they did a little bit of that the secret transgender or even just transvestite character mm-hmm. in the 90s it's actually gotten a lot better in modern yes. shoujo oh I'm yeah. not saying it was like great but I mean they no. did it a lot of time before mainstream western media did it I mean they had yeah, it for the movie, right like yeah. that was mm-hmm. mainstream mainstream yeah and, like, even the shonen would do it. It would always be a little bit more insulting in shonen, yeah. I think. I mean, and even, no. like, Nodiko and Fushigi was pretty heteronormative by the end. Mm-hmm. It was like, I dress like a boy because I miss my dead... Or I miss, like, dress like a woman because I miss my dead sister or yeah, something. Yeah. It's like, uh... Well, I mean, not to say that's an invalid, but, like, really... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The newer stuff... Like Lovecom had a really good... Didn't they have a transgender character who had, like, a crush on the main guy and it was just, like... Yeah, and they... they it was that handled, was handled well. pretty well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That comic's great, but... Yeah, Lovecom yeah. is just the best. Yeah, they're they're definitely moving forward. The bicep, even uh, Gentlemen's Alliance Cross had sort of a mm-hmm. secret gay-ish thing going on the side, or at least I, I, I mean, I think they were trying to argue that he was bisexual. I don't know if his friend was gay, but there was like a not straight thing going on with the main love interest. Um, and I was really surprised when that came out, and that's that shows maybe rather that manga is maybe eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, that I was like, whoa, look at this! Like they're they're playing with these boundaries. And then yeah. you also see Mayo Shinjo being like, I'm gonna have boys almost kiss because Mayo Shinjo is like the most heteronormative shoujo <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. And she's like, why aren't I having boys kiss every once in a while? But it was a little <laughs> bit more. You didn't mix those two things. You had the boys love 
magazine mm. and you had the non. And I think there was also, even in Japan, a lot of discrimination between mainstream shoujo who hated boys' love. I, I don't know how true that is. I know they were, like, a big... But sometimes they had... Like, Hanato Yume has had stories in it of boys' they love. Have, well, New I York, mean, like, New York, yeah. And, like, even Margaret, they had it, although... Did they? Well, yeah, like, bronze. That's why. That ran in Margaret? Yeah. Oh, my God, I didn't know that. Amazing. Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if that... Who knows what the industry was. Yeah. And you can also just get one editor that's like, put it in, you know. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, this is not sounding like we did a ton of research. <laughs> trying to, I didn't research this specifically, but... I do. I've definitely seen a trend that is getting more mixed. Mm-hmm. That you're not seeing the sexualities as segregated in the fiction as it used to be, which is great. As Becca said, it's, it's also like better, yeah. it's better yeah. objectively from a story perspective. It's like, oh man, you just made your love triangle twice as complicated because mm-hmm. now yeah. anybody could go for anybody. And I like how now it, because I started with romance novels, whatever, pretty heteronormative stuff that I'm used to happy endings. So I like. It seems like a lot of the early, the early big gay love stories or whatever that ran in shoujo were often tragic. Yeah, oh, always tragic. love is super tragic. And oh, I like, yeah. I like that sometimes now it's it's happy. Honestly, oh, yeah. it's happy like, most, most of the time, the time now. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah, at this point, it's harder to find a tragedy than just a yeah. You know, I mean, happy with big quotation marks around it because they probably <laughs> raped each other in chapter one. But yeah. like, you know, yeah. if you can kind of get past that. Then. We'll say happy ending, yeah. Yeah, like, happy like, ending. Like where they they're happy. At, they are happy at the end, even though you're like side eyeing it <laughs> from chapter one on. <laughs> well, that's a lot of shoujo. So. Yeah, that's true with shoujo as well. Um, and Jose. Well, Jose. Yeah. <laughs> Jose is just about so how much depressing. it sucks to be a woman. Yeah. <laughs> like ninety percent of the time. Yeah. That's probably too much of a generalization because there's some wonderful Jose out there, but a lot yeah. of the time it's just like, all right, ladies, let's get real. Yeah. You're gonna be discriminated <laughs> against. You're not gonna get what you want out of relationships. Everything sucks. It is a generalization, but I've you know of all the Jose I've read, even the ones that aren't specifically that, there's definitely undercurrents of that in mm-hmm. a lot of them, mm-hmm. where they're like, it's a man's world. You're it's you're, you're never gonna be able to build. deal with it, or or even just sort of. I mean, what I think is interesting is the balance. Like, I like the stories that it's a balance of your hopes versus reality. Yeah, and how you know, uh, Happy Mania is a great example of that. Where it's like <laughs> she's got these crazy dreams and just like bonkers ideas, and the fact that it just sort of clashes with everything that's going on around her. Yeah, um, like that's the meat of that series, or. You know, even even in uh, Kimi Wa Pet, which is yeah. a little slightly more grounded. Yeah. Um, you know that idea of like the stuff that she likes is not the stuff that she's really able to show to the world. Yeah. And it's it's her own neuroses that kind of cause that. So like the fact that she can't admit that she's into wrestling or whatever. Yeah. You know, because that doesn't fit with the persona that she's created. You know, that's that's some interesting stuff to be dealing with. It so. is, but you know, one thing that that always depressed me about a lot of Jose, and these are usually love stories because um, they get infinitely more depressing if there's a love story in it. They're not necessarily a love story, but it's like. A lot of the time they're about women in jobs, that they're, like, trying to find a good career or, you know, a walking butterfly, you know, where she's like, am I going to be a model? There are a fair number of them in English, really. These are kind of fairly big uh, Jose titles. There's usually, like, the work-love balance. How can you have a boyfriend and have a job and, like, be taken seriously and blah, blah, blah. And what depresses me more about Jose, besides this crushing patriarchy and all these things, and like you said, dreams versus reality is so much they make a compromise that I feel like they shouldn't have to make. Mm. That they're like, it's easier to not fight this one thing. Or like, maybe I was being stubborn about this one thing and it's not that big of a deal. But it's like, you see it, it's like, but that's that's the tip of the iceberg. There's a reason why, like, it's like microaggressions. Like, no, don't give up fighting those microaggressions. I, I mean, I see why, but at the same time, it's like, 
Jose is so much closer to reality that I would really like to see them genuinely overcoming those problems sometimes. And I feel like... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think ironically, it's like, the reality is that it's difficult to overcome those problems. Yeah, I know. And people don't overcome those problems, particularly in Japan. Yeah. So... Huh. I think the fantasy that they can is like, and I, I would disagree because I think, you know, in Kimi Wa Pet, she does kind of, she comes to, you know, the realization that the persona that she's created her, for herself is not what she wants. And she, instead of marrying the tall, handsome, hot guy, she marries kind of the weird ballet dancer. Yeah, that that comic, but, comic had other, I re, that's actually one of my favorite Jose, but there were other things about it that kind of annoyed me, but. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, nothing's perfect. Yeah. But. That one is, is definitely better than the average in terms of she, like, the mangaka was better at kind of, like, not making those sacrifices. It's more like most of the other Jose that I've read. And I think Princess Jellyfish, one of the reasons why that resonated so much with women our age and whatever, was it was a really accessible Jose that was really upbeat in a way that a lot of Jose are not. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. And it's also not, there was also this trend for a little while about Jose that came out over here where the women were so infantilized. So, like, the mm. few yeah. mainstream Jose were, like, High and Clover Ugh, sorry. and oh, yeah. Nodame Contadile. I, I used to read that, read that, like, when I was in Japan, I read Honey and Clover. Or, is it Honey and Clover? Honey and Clover. Oh, it's Honey and Clover. Clover. And I really liked it for about five volumes, and I was like, is she ever going to grow up? Yeah. Like, is she ever going to not have to correct all <laughs> her, her mistakes? I'm like, this is shit. There was a, an issue. You introduced you me. Know, it's a volume 10 and they finally do. But it, there's, oh, there's okay. five volumes of everybody kind of spinning in circles. For, yeah. Which is what you do when you're 20. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But then it's yeah. like, why? Yeah. But the whole thing is like, why? I started wondering, why is he so fixated on her? Like, yeah, she looks like why? a baby and acts like a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, that was yeah. more my thing was that why am I reading a Jose where the one major female character looks and acts like a baby? Yeah. Like, and, what's happening? And there was definitely a degree of that in Nodame Cantabile. And in both of those comics, a lot of the time, the perspective was about the guy who was mm-hmm. in love with her. And it's mm-hmm. like, great. Like, and I think that, like, those series in a vacuum wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But the or, but the problem was we only got like half a dozen Jose over here, and then the right. ones that were successful, which were those two to a point, as successful as Jose ever is over here, which is not right. a lot. Although I think Princess Jellyfish did okay, like as the anime. Anyway, the manga's not over here, but I was just like for a while, yeah. Beck and I were slamming our head against the wall. We're like, why can't we get a Jose that's about an actual adult woman and not they about? Exist, but yeah, they weren't coming not, over here. Yeah, yeah, and they weren't popular, and they yeah. weren't. And this was being like, oh, this is Jose. It's for the older older women, and I'm like, great. The moe bullshit is now going into fucking Jose. Like, get out of my Jose, you piece of. <laughs> well, that's pretty old. But I it's true. Yeah. yeah, but it's true that the well, Princess Jellyfish is interesting largely because all the women in that are not even. They're not even making patriarchal bargains. They are just so outside of society because yeah. they cannot function like mm-hmm. human beings are supposed to for the most part. But not you know? in an infantilizing no, way. No, yeah. because they're they're totally just, they, they kind of grip their own thing with both hands and are like, well, I may have serious anxiety disorders about leaving the house, but uh, I know all there is to know about trains, motherfucker. <laughs> so, yeah. It's actually really interesting. So I've, I've been keeping up on the mangas that's been coming out and it's, you know, gone twice as far as of what we got in the anime. So to spoil some aspects of it. So in order to, like, make money, they start basically a fashion line based on her jellyfish dresses. And uh, Gigi, the one who's obsessed with old dudes, kind of becomes, like, the responsible accountant of the bunch. So, like, they sort of write off um, the Three Kingdoms fan and and trains as, like, okay, you're never really going to do anything different. But she's like, look, I want to help. I need to kind of get my shit together and, like kind of balance this out. It was it was really interesting to kind of have that little bit of character development on her part. Um, to kind of step forward and 
without, again, like what I like about that series is that you get these transformations throughout where they all sort of dress up and, and go out on their little excursions thanks to Kuranosuke's help. It doesn't fundamentally change any of them. It's kind of this like superficial, like it's a makeover, but it's a makeover that still retains a lot of their sort of identity and uniqueness in an interesting way. And so I, I liked seeing Gigi kind of move in a new direction without getting rid of her old self. So like she's not throwing away that uh, essential identity, but she is still kind of moving forward and progressing in a way that we've got a couple of characters that are clearly not doing that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> contrast. Yeah, it was. So I'm, I'm really curious to see kind of where she goes with this series because I keep worrying that it's gonna like jump the shark and, and become really I don't know. Have it, you? It's gonna become cliche and it still hasn't done that yet. Lillian, so. are you up to fourteen? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm kind of interested. Because now it's changed a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. it's changed a lot. Yeah, I will. I will so. say I've only I've only seen the anime. So yeah, you know. but there there was a fun fundamentally from the beginning of that series. Like you could tell that she's like, hey, I'm gonna make a bunch of different kinds of women who don't look like normal women in manga and don't act like yeah, normal right. women in manga. And there are a lot of them. And like you're gonna like yeah, some of yeah. them and you're not gonna like other ones. It was just all mm -hmm. of a sudden, women were being treated as an ensemble cast outside of the. Well, yeah, qu quite frankly, moe archetypes of like, I mean, there's shoujo archetypes as well. You have like the stylish oh, best sure. friend, the, the mean girl, the, you know, mm -hmm. transfer student, like somebody's yeah, got a princess, firm yeah. princess, yeah, pop star. The rich girl, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Princess, the Yanta Nadesco character. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and I think also that Princess Jellyfish is a really good transitional Jose. Um, if from reading a lot of shoujo, then moving to Jose mm -hmm. before you get to all the crushing stuff, you can have these kind of like great like comedies. Uh, Kimi Kimi Wapet, uh, also called Tramps Like Us in English, that was like you mentioned. That's another pretty good one. I always like Yuki Yoshihara, who does mm -hmm. tons of romantic, like really really raunchy funny. sex comedy, so funny. Yeah. But she has this really shoujo style of her yeah. art and her storytelling. So you read it, and you're like, oh, it's a fun show. You're like, oh, my God, erectile dysfunction joke on page three. And you're like, wow, somebody's talking about dick, like, in a Jose. Yeah. And they're just like, let's talk about dick now. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is, the, the only series of hers that got brought over to English was Flowers, Butterflies, which was almost a parody in the title itself. Flowers, Butterflies! By Viz, I think the Shoujo Beat line brought it over. Mm. Um, and it is one of her weirdest series that also mm. translates the worst. It's about, like, a super, a Japanese super family, like a rich family, who like fell out of you know they're poor now, mm. and then so their their young their daughter who's like twenty or whatever ends up going to this company and her boss used to be her servant uh. when she was younger so it's a combination and plus it's like super like a weird S and M thing because he's like my dearest you know like oh I don't remember her name it was like Chimaka or something like oh Sama and then like as soon as other people show up he's like. Get my coffee, bitch. And it's supposed to be like an S&M comedy based off of Japanese office policies and... And politics. Old, old hierarchical, like, like <laughs> Japanese Man, why did they bring that over? Why did they bring know. it over? Why did I don't... they bring over, like, uh, what's the one, like, Namamono Tsuki? Like, my husband has a... Oh, was she married? One? Yeah, she... Oh, oh, is that the one with the... the she marries the doctor? Yeah. And yeah. she can't... She, she just orgasms every time he touches her. Yeah, and he's like, this is a problem. Like, we gotta go to, it's like, amazing. we have to go volume. to the theater. Like, The first volume is them trying to figure out a way that she can actually be conscious so they can have sex. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's well, it's, oh, they're, like, Yuki Yoshihara is kind of defined by crazy women and handsome, befuddled men in professional jobs yes. who are, like, trying to handle these women. So they'll be, like, teachers or, you know, and there's a professor or you know, doctors, businessmen, uh, stuff like that. And so it's always, like, really funny. And it's crude in a way that 
it, it's like freeing. You know, it's like mm-hmm. the first time I read Happy Mania, and she talked about not shaving her leg over the knee unless she was going to sleep with somebody. And I was just like, the first time I read that, I was like, oh my God, someone acknowledges women's <laughs> stuff, like real women's stuff, not like makeover time, but like, yeah. you know, I am wearing granny panties and I might have a one night stand and should I go home and change? Like stuff that like, the gross things that are like real, like real gross mm-hmm. things, not Hollywood gross things. Um, and leg hair is a really great example. Like anything that talks about leg hair, like Hunger Games yeah. had like they put it in the they I think they took it out the trailer. Yeah. There was like that leg waxing scene where she's like, I oh, need yeah, my yeah. leg hair in the winter so I don't freeze. <laughs> and they're like waxing off her hair and she's like, No, where's my leg hair? And she's like, Oh man, it made the fucking trailer like <laughs> At least they showed somebody waxing a leg and I was like, Yes. But it, it wasn't really in the in the movie the same way it was in the book. Because of course not. It's Hollywood. But mm-hmm. they, just, they want to pretend that women are naturally hairless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is just, you know, you get in the Guardians of the Galaxy problem where it's like, and yet everywhere in the galaxy that we go, all women are humanoid and somehow hairless below the neck, you know, like, or b- below the eyebrows. Because, mm-hmm. like, you know, why wasn't Groot a lady? You know, like, why didn't you have any of the monsters be female voiced? Like, anyway, they all have to be sexy and they're all thin, and even if they're green or whatever. So mm-hmm. we're getting off topic. Okay. <laughs> a question that I wanted to kind of throw out to the rest of you, yeah. which is the idea of Mary Sue's. And that's like, it's something that I've seen going around in different Tumblr debates recently is both like wanting to move beyond the Mary Sue character and continuing to sort of make your female characters interesting and, and different. Um, but at the same time, Mary Sue having both a value in kind of a feminist context and a value in sort of a developmental as a writer context. Mm-hmm. So, so discuss. There's, I think there's always going to be room for that. Like, as long as that's not exclusively what you have, and as long as we don't immediately write off something that is that, then I think it's just one other type but, of But, like, story. I think that that's, that's part of, like, the, the issue that's going around right now, is that a lot of people will write off otherwise interesting female characters as, oh, it's just a Mary Sue. Yeah, that's and, sexism, um, though. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, and, and I mean, I do think that, like, we don't have a generic female archetype who's strong and works really you know what i mean like when you talk let's like talk about like archetypal characters which i think mary sue's tend to be in that kind of category a little bit like characters that are a little more symbolic and a little less gritty kind of i mean we have so many fucking action movies where those guys are wildly unrealistic they are clearly some kind of fantasy for men james bond yeah i mean james bond is one of them but like yeah. yeah, James Bond and Batman are both Mary Sue's. And, 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 and I yeah. think even more so, just like more generic action movies, those characters they're basically interchangeable. Mm. I don't remember any of their names. Sometimes Bruce Willis plays them. Sometimes <laughs> like like those characters who like Jeremy Renner. Yeah, like you know, at least James Bond and Batman have this kind of mythos behind them. They've been mm. done by a lot of great people. I'm talking about like a one shot action movie yeah. with a guy whose name is probably Jack something. <laughs> and like yeah. these characters are the most generic things you could ever have. And yeah. you know, no man actually acts like that. No person acts like that. And yet we kind of give it a pass because oh it's just a dumb action movie. But like, you know, you get a female character who I mean like the the, the sort of female equivalent of that tends to be the love interest who doesn't really have a personality and, you know, will say something confusing for the guy and her, how much she likes him is directly related to his character arc and that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. But she's not a hero. Nobody wants to be her, really. Mm-hmm. They, she, she's another one who's kind of like a, a, a archetype for men. So for women, our, like, generic woman character, she tends to be a lot more flawed and fucked up 
you know, because of sort of these female gender roles, she's either passive or she's like, you know, the, the new girl in school and blah, blah, blah. Like, it's, it just isn't really an equivalent. So I think a lot of the characters who are trying to be this kind of aspirational character for women get labeled as a Mary Sue because it's yeah. like, there, there's nothing wrong with women being able, and girls in particular, like younger people, having this kind of like, wow, I wish I could be as cool as that girl kind of character. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. I, I, sorry, I'm getting kind of rambly, but it's just kind of like... No, I know what you mean. That there's... Yeah. There's not as much, this ends up backfiring, there's not as much of these archetypes for what is a strong female character or whatever. Therefore, anything that smells like it could be a cliche for strong female characters written off, which means now you have a swath of types of female characters who are written off because they're like, well, all the men like her, so obviously she's a Mary Sue. Well, she's stronger than the men, so obviously she's a Mary Sue. Or, oh, she has all these magic powers. She's the chosen one. She's a Mary Sue. So is fucking Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, generic action guy always gets the girl in the end. Sometimes they talk to each other three times. Like, you know, it's like those tropes are just accepted for some reason, and then because these we're still sort of experimenting with what works for this kind of aspirational perfect woman it gets kind of tacked more you yeah know? well well some of that is just ingrained sexism oh yeah that's yeah, yeah there's there's sexism there's internalized sexism which is when like people who are the victims of sexism are, are themselves sexist mm-hmm. yeah i think people are so incredibly biased against female characters and i agree though that there is kind of a dearth of good female characters in Western canon that's mainstream, partially because, again, most of it was tailored toward men and women were more symbolic. And then also, when you talk about sort of Western canon, again, well, romance novels are separate. We'll separate those out right now. Let's talk about Hollywood. Women who run run movies, like a movie is carrying women, are almost always romantic comedies. And those women are awful. They're like a combination of quirks and selfishness and Hollywood doesn't seem Hollywood doesn't seem to understand that being independent and being selfish are not the same thing. That you can be independent and not a dick. Or like you can be jealous but not actively petty. You know, like it's just it's such a mess. Like we we don't have issues here. But then you have that combined with like, you know, so we don't have a lot of great female characters in Hollywood period combined with internalized sexism and just straight up sexism, you know, like plenty of just people are not not identifying as women who are also just sexist and women holding themselves to a higher standard, which I think is also women are socialized to try and hold themselves to a higher standard, take the higher ground. You know, there's none of this boys will be boys stuff. Women always have to, you have to be perfect. You can't, Mm -hmm. you know, be private, be, you know, have shame, you know, be keep quiet. Don't take as much space. All these things combined together mean making a female character that appeals to a lot of women that isn't touched by one of these many forces incredibly difficult and pretty much impossible. Yeah, I think it's impossible. And honestly, yeah. it's also a numbers game. The more women yeah. you yeah. have, the more certain ones of them can be flawed or fall into stereotypes mm-hmm. yes. because there's a greater variety of them to sort of pick oh, up yeah. the slack. And, and a lot of women have, have, you know, especially in Hollywood, I feel like, I don't know if Gina Davis was one of the people who said this, but probably one of the many people who said this, we just need more female mm-hmm. characters. Like, that's part of the problem that... Like, especially in Hollywood, it's like the vast majority of characters are male for no good reason. The types of women fall, again, Guardians of the Galaxy problem. It's like, why are they all skinny, humanoid? Like, why don't we have monsters who are women? That's something that I always go back to this whenever we talk about feminism in media. One Piece, even though it's got the big boob problem, Mm -hmm, which is mm -hmm. sort of almost just an aesthetic... One Piece is so great about that. They have women monsters all the time. He has hot girls. He has kids. He has old ladies. He has badass old ladies and not badass old ladies. He has, like, great... Well, fair. Most of his old ladies are pretty badass. Well, everybody in One Piece is sort yeah. of secretly badass. That's kind of what, what happens. They're all badass in their own weird way. But, like, if you go to the... Like, if you get a monkey on your team... There's one point where they meet the monkey. You know, like, half the time that's going to be a lady, that monkey. Because... 
Ichiro Oda thinks outside the box. The women that are on that crew are just crew. They're not it, the lady. Yeah, it took him a little while to get there. Yeah, he I mean, took a while to figure out how to draw women who didn't all look identical, but then yeah. he got there eventually. Yeah, well, he started taking the monsters and occasionally adding boobs or not adding boobs because they weren't all, you know, it's not boob-centric. Like, especially if you're a monster, like, you might not have memory. <laughs> like, you might, you might not be a mammal or whatever. If you get more of a variety. So I think Mary Sue is just one other part of how people hate female characters because of all these factors. And Mary Sue is an easy scapegoat because it's like, oh, clearly a 13-year-old is is working out her own shit through this bad fan fiction. And I say to that, great! Work out your shit through fan fiction when you're 13. That's so healthy. Why are we writing that off? Maybe not everybody's going to enjoy reading it, but like... You can't begrudge it existing. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to get mad that some people are bad writers, then, <laughs> I mean, I don't know where that ends. Yeah, and I mean, in the same way that, like, James Bond and Batman are not written for me, but I think that those are archetypes. The Mary Sue for men, two different types. There's kind of, like, the suave one and, the like, the really hardened one. I think Batman is a really interesting, the very angry, privileged white guy mm-hmm. archetype, which I, I think they do really interesting things with it. And there was a friend of ours who used to always say that one of the women reason a lot of men like Batman, in his opinion, was he's like, most of these kind of entitled white guys want to know that if they had to, they could just put on a mask and go kick the shit out of bad guys. That they could secretly, you know, that they could just go out at night and beat people. And, like, a, a more robust version of this character, I would say, arguably, is Rorschach from yeah, Watchmen. Yeah, I was thinking that, too. Yeah, who's, like... He's so appealing to so many people, even though Rorschach is a horrible person, because he sees the world in black and white. And there are a lot of people who are like, they're bad guys and they're good guys, and good guys should kill the bad guys, period. Mm -hmm. And, like, the fact, the way that Rorschach was interpreted by the audience is actually kind of terrifying. Mm -hmm. That a lot of, clearly Alan Moore was not trying to write this guy as somebody that you should look up to. But a lot of people did, because they're like, you know, and also we talk about media for men, how these things are kind of black and white, that they don't get the nuance that a lot of... The mainstream... You know what's interesting? I was reading, I found a new site after Gamergate, actually. Uh, Badass <laughs> Digest. Which oh, no, you're going to summon them if you say No, no, a pretty good, I, I really like it. Like, it's mo- mostly a movie review site, but they do, like, other articles. And one of their writers, Film Crit Hulk, writes a lot of good, interesting Oh, yeah. Things. No, that was a beautiful essay. Yeah, yeah. and he, he was saying that, yeah, he worked, or he, he grew up, I'm not sure, in inner cities, and there, the most popular superhero is Superman. Because oh. for inner city kids, a lot of whom are not white, mm-hmm. not privileged, um, their fantasy is having control, like ultimate control. They're stronger, faster, whatever, than everyone. Whoa. And, uh, like, suburbs, Batman. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I found that really interesting. I don't think I... That was a really long essay. I'm not sure I read all of it. I know. Wow. They're so long, but they're so good. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe this was a different article I read. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And makes sense to me. Like, Batman does feel to me like a privileged white guy fantasy, specifically. Yeah. And also, it's like, I'm not going to go into this a lot, but when people, everybody has anger inside them, right? Everybody wants to get upset about something. Everybody wants to be dramatic about something. Everybody wants to have righteous indignation. Mm. When you don't have a lot of problems in your life, <laughs> you look, you kind of look for things to channel this anger. That's why drama comes out of, like, you know, people who lo- have everything they want, then they create their own drama. Or, I mean, not to say that you can't have drama if you quote-unquote have everything you want, because everybody's got problems. But there are people who manufacture this. And you'll see a little bit sometimes, and as much as I love Tumblr communities, but, like, Tumblr communities pride themselves on being really progressive, but they basically become mean girls about it. <laughs> yeah. And they become, like, PC bullies sometimes. Actually, I was going to talk about the Mary Sue thing with that. It's the, the mm-hmm. perfect is the enemy of the good. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. you cannot, a strong female character, no one character can be the perfect strong yeah. female character it's either for one person they might be great 
for other people, no, she's too strong, she's too mean, she's too selfish, she's too yeah. whatever, blah, blah, blah. And that's why we need more, more, mm-hmm. more, more female yeah. characters. Mm-hmm. More Mary Sue's, more bitchy female mm-hmm. characters, more gross female characters, yeah. more everything. More universes where it's actually a 50-50 split of men and women, you know? Yes. Like, yeah, like, really? like, even the mobs, even the ones that get killed. I don't know, yeah. like... Even the what, like the mechanic working on something, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just you know, background dude number two, yeah. and that was another. Gar- we keep bringing up Guardians of the Galaxy, and because I thought that that was actually a really interesting case study of all the things that Hollywood does wrong with depicting women mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and just the idea that there was that one spot where there were like the three fighter pilots, and I was like, number three is going to be a woman, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. There was zero yeah. reason for number three to not be a woman. Yeah, you know? Guardians of the Galaxy was a really fun movie, but it was like. Any of the little, like, baby steps that some of the superhero movies were making with that, it took baby steps back. Mm. Like, they couldn't even yeah. reach the levels they had with <laughs> Avengers. They're like, oh, no, 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 wait, let's let's just... They did have a good uh, semi-nude male scene, which I liked. But yeah, but that, that's so easy. They're just I like, because the men want to see yeah, how ripped cause, that, cause like, like, Andy you know, from Parks and Rec got. Yeah, like, make that guy do push-ups for seven months, and then make him take off his shirt. It's like, this isn't... This yeah, isn't plus, do you notice when they do those shots, with the exception of maybe Thor, which was, like, pretty objectifying, the, you know, that one shot that we all know, that yeah. one shot, yeah. you notice that when you have um, Chris Pratt, and it's like, do you know how his head is in the shot? It's not a mm. slow camera pan from his, like, dripping right. abs mm-hmm. up. Like, it's just... It's not equivalent, and yeah. yeah. But that's the thing. They're like, we can make that. It stuff. totally threw one of those into Thor, though. Thor too. Yeah, this thing's Thor. Totally like a lingering pan up shot. Yeah. Of yeah. Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. yeah, I don't like the Thor movies at all, but Thor is definitely more femme friendly than most of the other Avengers. But I think that it's time to just. I mean, okay, this is gonna make me very unpopular, but I'm just tired of like watching every tiny move Marvel and DC make, and they're like throw you a tiny, tiny Boom. scrap of yeah. something, yeah. and you're like. Oh, Oh, it's progressive. It's like, can we just like ignore yeah. them a little bit? Like, yeah. maybe we they're should making go... so much money. Yeah. Can we like you go see those movies? They're fun, whatever. But like, when all of a sudden my fandom is just all Avengers all the time, it's like this is what's inspiring people. Yeah, like, it's like found... this is really it's the so... thing that you know. Are, are we really saying that Black Widow is the best female character? Because oh, I found on. her so uninteresting. So I don't know, guys. Like, mm-hmm. it's like I can see She's how she might right. be interesting if you're like really you have nothing. Good if you have no other to, female characters to look at, yeah. don't. Well, yeah, <laughs> but I mean, maybe you should come read Sparkler Monthly. Is what <laughs> I'm saying. I'm sorry. Well, no, you know, in sparkler, no, I know, I know. Sparkler side, because obviously we're trying to make, we're trying to serve the market that we feel is underserved, and it's generally been served by fandom making their own mythos mm-hmm. and stuff. But when Twilight came out, this was a really good example. The women were going crazy for Twilight, right? That it was like. Everyone I know who had read shoujo before was like, eh. Because, like, Twilight was the only mainstream-ish shoujo that came out in America, in Canada. They're like, wow, it's about a girl, and there are these boys who are fighting over her, but it's also action, and she's kind of tough, and, like, she can turn into a vampire, and, like, it's all about her and her feelings. But I'm like, this is amazing. I'm like, oh, my God, that's the only one that you have. I'm sorry. And then, like, usually while they're talking about it, I'm just, like, dumping books into their backpack. Like, here's all of (laughs) Basada, you know, like... (laughs) Here's Please Save My Earth. This is from 30 years ago in Japan. Like, it, and that's partially because we don't we don't separate you know the the market that they do there. Like we have market for women, but it's like the pinkified tween market that mm. has this vacuum for something for women. Something for women between the ages of 15 and 25. Before that, there's a big tween market, mm-hmm. and after that, you have like the rom coms and then some of these like. Oh, well, I heard Tomorrow Pierce is actually going to get 
movies. Maybe Tomorrow so. Pierce. She yeah. should. I mean, so. she's. Dead. Oh, it's about maybe fucking a time. Yeah. Sorry. Something. She yeah. Yeah. I follow her on Tumblr. <laughs> Throw all the money at her, please. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's time. I mean, it, it, you need to prime the market for Tomorrow Pierce, but I think Hunger Games primed. It's nice it? and warm. It's ready yeah. for Tomorrow Pierce's like Lady Nights, and not all Lady Nights. She just writes a lot of women doing stuff. Yeah. I, I want to talk very briefly about create constructing love stories for like in femme friendly audiences and, and stuff that we've seen you know between the stuff and sparkler and just things that you know working in the industry for a long time trends i'm starting to see this connection between um if you look at how interesting a character is the more attractive they're supposed to be in a story the less attractive they sort of are if you think about your favorite anime who's your favorite character probably not going to be the main two people in a love story. It's probably going to be one of the wacky sidekicks. They're taken out of the love story. They have interesting motivations. They kind of have flaws and strengths and whatever. I see this weird connection that, like, when somebody is supposed to be attractive within their own universe, they start creators like, oh, God, they have to be believably attractive. What are all these things that make somebody attractive? Mm. And it tends to be these, like, weird ties together of, like, these fetishes or they're like they play it super safe Brands. with them. Yeah, and like this is where some of the Mary Sue stuff comes in even though I think it comes from a very different place. Like that they intend it's like if we're going to talk about male media for a minute because I think this is really noticeable in male oh, media God. that it's like the guy who's in a harem manga oh, he's always is like a... traditionally the most unlikable, uninteresting, well, he's weird, just bland, like so bland. Yeah, because he has to be like almost <laughs> like neutral mm-hmm. but have all the characteristics that would make all these people fall in love with him so that it's like he has these sides to him that come out of nowhere that just fit into each of these different plot lines or whatever. It's a little different depending on this was written for men or for women mm-hmm. who you're supposed to relate to, but God forbid the, the really hot girl that everybody's supposed to like in a male gaze thing, oh, that she God. has no personality. Oh God, you know, the number of, t- I'm sorry, not to interrupt you, but I do some freelance editorial work on the side. The number of times I've had to go to a man and say, your love interest character's motivations have to make sense. Yeah, like they, they have she these can't, women yeah, She can't no just sense. act in random ways because that's how you think women act. You have to be able to tell no. me. <laughs> why is she flirting right now? Why is she no. pulling away right now? Why is she like they just don't? It doesn't even occur to them that's something they have to mm. think through. Yeah, mm. they get they get stuck in this love interest. You know, uh, this love interest. It's like a like a and love interest is like anything you need for the story. Yeah, exactly. They get trapped in this cage, as opposed to when you think about like these stories like no. that have love stories but they're usually side characters and not even necessarily comic relief but like what about the best friend what about the brother what about and you feel like wow these people are interesting they have their own lives they have their own motivations they have their own internal consistency so one one thing that i found that in the way that fandom works right so you have canon love stories like true otps you know that are within the canon and then you look at what is fandom actually exploring do they actually like that main couple or do they want to slash <laughs> everybody else on the mm-hmm. side you know, Derek and Styles from Teen Wolf is like a perfect example, even though that game, that show buys into it. But yeah, that is canon. Isn't but it? okay, maybe now it's almost canon. Uh, maybe I mean I've never watched Lillian the show. Lillian would know. That's just the end. Yeah, but like there is, a, you know, there's a guy and a woman in Teen Wolf who are not Derek and Styles. You wouldn't know that from the. You would think that. Like from fandom, that Teen Wolf is actually the Derek and Styles show when they're not the leads, <laughs> because they're it's not just the leads. No. no. I know. Isn't that amazing? Mind-blowing, right? <laughs> so one thing that we found, um, and this is like both in stuff that runs in Sparkle, stuff that we've written, stuff that we've mm. edited, whatever, mm. is like 
when you're creating a story and you want to have a good love story, don't necessarily go out starting saying, this person's going to get with this person, you know, like, you can do that sometimes, but whatever. Take all of your characters and put them in a room and have them bounce off of each other and see who has the best chemistry. Because that's how shipping actually works. And there's something that we did with Tokyo Demons, like, the original version of that story was sort of a game, so it kind of turned out that way as well. But when we started writing it, like, our couples changed as we started writing it. Because, like, the more it went on, we're like, wow, these people have really good chemistry. And sometimes the fans would be clicking on it. It's like, you know, I never really thought of them as a couple, but it's true that they'd be very compatible. And I didn't really think of that, because I wasn't thinking, like, at the end, you're going to get up, so they have to, like, have these three scenes in a row mm. that are going to show that they're in love or whatever, and that they're going to be limited by having to have these compatibilities with these other people. They just have good chemistry. They feel like real people who, you, if they were your friends, you're like, you should ask her out. You know, like, you guys would be great together. And, like... That's something that free, <laughs> okay, so free Iwatobi Swim Club, which probably everybody who's listened to this has watched, because it was the big show for ladies last summer and the summer before. We're at least seen a lot of art of those guys. Of yeah, abs. Free does that so beautifully, because free was basically a love story to fandom, not, not specifically to, like, women who like abs or women who like boys or, or yaoi fans. It wasn't. It was a love letter, femme-run fandom, saying, we're, we're going to make a premise for you guys. And then you can run with it. Like, nobody in there, like, they were arguably sort of, like, they broke down into pairs, mm. kind of, that, like, people who got along better with other people or whatever, they kept throwing people in, being like, let's retcon this guy, he was always your best friend from this, you know, like, this wasn't in the original book, but here's Sosuke, you've always known him. I want you to remember all those times we talked about Sosuke. <laughs> anyway, but it's like, they would throw these things in, and they'd set up these premises where it's like, a really good example is the Haru Mako Sosuke, or sorry, uh, Rin thing. Sosuke was like a side, you know, he even, he made it even more complicated that it's like, Haru has problems, right? We all acknowledge that like Haru has issues, he's trying to deal with them. Mako feels, uh, Makoto feels a very important part of his life. Rin feels a very important part of his life. You could argue they're both equally important to his development. They're different from what like Nagisa is in his life for what reason or Ray, you know, these, these different roles that people play. And different episodes focused on his relationship with those yeah. different guys. They do their own so it wasn't yeah, just like, oh, and here's this guy, and at the end we're going to run off and hold hands. I'm not going to spoil the end, although there was a little bit of that. They were vague about it. They showed that, like, there was no clear, with the exception of maybe Ray and Nagisa, which was pretty clear coupling. Like on... Nobody else wants a piece of that. They're sorry. <laughs> There's a huge fandom. Even though we don't, we're not interested. I'm but, sorry. Like, like they, they didn't. They weren't so rigidly formulaic, there was no clear pairing. And it wasn't even that much of a love triangle. It was kind of like, these people are all important, how are they going to work as an ensemble cast? How are they going to move mm. forward? They have to work together. All this great stuff. So fandom kind of went crazy, as they would. Like, in a good way. They're like, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to explore this, and I wanna, I'm want. i curious about when they were kids, or when they were adults, or when they are whatever sort of thing. AUs. Yeah, AUs, like, that. they sort of, but, like, Free did a little bit of throw them in a room, see who bounces off them syndrome, you know? Some people... <laughs> They're all mermaids and firemen. It's a separate issue. Yeah, all those, those AUs. The, yeah, like, you could tell it's a love letter to fandom because they are AU fanfics and the ending themes are very clear. Um, the fact that they had fanfic premises, like, oh my god, we're all stuck on this deserted island and all we have are swimsuits and aprons. Like, like I mean, it's the point, I was like, are you kidding me? But it was, it was also kind of great because they weren't like, oh, let's all have swimsuits and aprons and talk about how embarrassed I am to wear a swimsuit. They just, like having a conversation while they're wearing swimsuits and aprons, and then they're like, now go write some fanfiction. This episode ended, and now go write some fanfics. Like, <laughs> I felt like every episode of Free was telling me that. Like, go explore this, kids, you know? Um, and hey, I think we're that... sharing a hotel room, and then it fades to black. 
Oh, there was only one bed. Yeah, that, oh, that was so great. <laughs> but they didn't even go that far with it. It was like, yeah, let's have a conversation, then we'll fade to black and move on and, like, write your fanfic now. But, like, I think Free is a, a pretty good mainstream example of that, where they weren't so rigidly caught down. And the fact that Free wasn't actually yaoi, you know, like, they, none, none of them are going to make out at the end, right? But at the same time, it wasn't trying to put people in these, like, super rigid love roles, which I think are specifically, and we talk about tropes in romance novels, right? That, like, these, like, love interest roles in the action movie for men thing, you have the woman who just is falls for him the minute he has his character development or whatever, and she's hot at the same time, oh my god. Mm-hmm. And for women, it's just, like, you know, these romance novels where it's, like, you know, you browbeat him and he's, like, you're too strong-minded a woman for me and then at the end he's like i love you anyway you know like pride and prejudice style with it like every marriage proposal is a fight you know like (laughs) where it's like oh but you outwitted him like fuck that guy he's gonna have to marry you now you son of a bitch you know like so you have kind of these tropes and when you move outside of them and just try to develop people and then let the love stories come naturally now i know that's hard to do but a lot of the stuff that we publish specifically are not really that love story centric. There are love stories in them, but there's a greater plot, there's a greater character development, whatever. But the love stories that come up, I think, feel, a lot of the time, they feel kind of natural. That they're like, there are a fair number of characters who hook up with somebody, but they won't necessarily end up with someone. Or they have a crush on someone, but they won't necessarily pursue it or they'll grow out of it or whatever. I think Awake is one of the few things that sort of had specific kind of like, it, Awake is actually kind of an ensemble of love stories. And like, we were debating about how do you market that now it's finished, because we didn't want to spoil or anything. This doesn't spoil it, but sometimes you don't even really want to tell people what the theme is. Mm. The, the greater theme of that is what would you do for love? And it doesn't mean necessarily sexual love, but it's about things like, quite frankly, it's about sacrifice and things that people give up because they love other people. So love story is an important part of it, but it's more about what an individual person would do for love. So the love stories had to feel really natural. And that was something that we were worried about when we started, that we're like, we're really limited in what we can do. How are we going to make these characters sort of not fall into these tropes, but be believable? Because, you know, when you only have like three hours or whatever, and you have like six characters, and it's like, how are their interactions going to feel natural? It was like, we didn't really think about them coupling that much, with a couple exceptions. Like, you open it, and it's very clear that Robbie has a crush on Hina. That's mm-hmm. one of the only things that's accepted. And also, Seb and Janelle had a former relationship, and they broke up. Mm-hmm. Like, when you start with that, and sometimes you need a little backstory like that, there are a few things you can take for granted. It's like, you know, the meet-cute happens somewhere else in the back. You know, Yeah, like, well, I mean, part, of, part of the thing with Awake is also that, like, a lot of them had histories with people, and that yeah. was also an important development. They weren't all, like, six young, hot, single people. It's like, <laughs> in space. this one has a fiancé, this one has a kid, this yeah. one has many kids, this yeah. one has, uh, you know, this dude's single but has a string of failed relationships behind him. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> Um, but th- and those things are great. I think when somebody thinks about a love interest, they're they're caught on the meet cute. They're caught on the development mm-hmm. without thinking like how many people really walk into a relationship and they've never had any kind of romantic development in their life before this. Like how rare is that? what are you like thirteen? Like most people, even if you didn't have a relationship before this, you have a sexuality before this. You have crushes. You have unrequited love. Mm-hmm. You have you know somebody who made you feel shitty. You know, quite frankly, sometimes you have assault, which can complicate mm-hmm. things. Like, there are always aspects of a person that will, 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 you can walk into the story saying, I have these issues because of the following reasons. It should be part of their backstory. It should be just as important as I watched my mother die and now I have to go kill her murderer or whatever. Being like these things that affected you, you are the sum of your experiences in a lot of ways, and characters should be too. And then once they're in there, have them interact in a normal way, the way that people would at a cocktail party, and you will start 
you know, like as long as your characterizations are, are solid, and that's what Becca said earlier, that she saw these problems that are like, you have this love interest. What are her motivations? They can't be entirely tied to this guy. They can be tied to someone after the story goes on when you know that she really loves him. So, for example, if you walk in, Robbie and Hina is a kind of a good example. He has a crush on her from like minute one. It's, you know, some people just develop crushes or whatever. He's a little bit developmentally different from some of the other people. He latched on really quickly and he's like clinging to that. But beyond that, what are her issues? What are her motivations? Like, he does some things for her because he loves her or whatever, but that's not all he does. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, it can be a piece of this. So I think a lot of people, you know, when we talk about love stories, and, you know, we go through the submissions and sometimes we send feedback on that kind of thing. I wish more people would just think of your people as individuals with their own sexuality, their own romantic hang-ups, their own desires, their own dreams. And then you can start looking at your cast and saying, I'd like these two to be together or whatever. But don't lock yourself in there. Like, give yourself a little breathing room to see who has chemistry and then ship it yourself like give yourself shipping room basically Hmm. and i think that way you get kind of more robust people you get more convincing love stories and then also and this is something that we explored a lot in toki demons obviously that only relationship like you shouldn't treat a romantic relationship as the most important relationship in your life all the time friendship is really fucking important family is important to you like mentors even like that weird guy you don't really like but he's in your life and the minute he's gone you're like God, I miss that weird guy. I didn't realize how much I needed him. This is something that Community, that show, is really mm. good at, talking about, like, ensemble cast, that mm. it's like, when Pierce is gone, they're like, who are we going to make fun of? Like, that guy was just the butt of all... We got all of our anger out on that guy, and he could take it, and nobody else can really take it. Parks and Rec is another great ensemble cast. You see these, like, you know... It, it's funny to compare this to sitcoms, but you notice how in both Parks and Rec and Community... They all kind of interfuck a little bit. Friends actually did this okay. I mean, they were more annoying about it, oh, but... But part of the reason I think people like that show is it's like you live in groups. We're community animals. Very few people live in an apartment alone with their love interest, you know? And in fact, that's a really destructive narrative. I mean, I think that that's yeah. one of, like, mm. in my opinion, my biggest problems with Twilight is sort of the glorification of, like, your one true love. Yeah. And like I'm like, that's, that really it. fucks people up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, on a variety of levels. Because you spend your entire life looking for, like, one single person. And then what do you do when it doesn't work? I think that, that just, it adds this just bonkers level of, of pressure to mm-hmm. any sort of romantic relationship that I think, yeah, it's just it's weird. The flip side is that I'm going to throw in kind of what I think is one of my pop romantic kinks in like a non-sexually kinky way yeah, is yeah. that trust. Trust, mm-hmm. I think, is like the sexiest thing that you can write. Yeah. And, and I think it has a lot to do with sort of like anxiety about being a woman in a patriarchal society is that it's it's like a spin-off of sort of the idea of the one true love is like the one person who can kind of understand you or but it's not necessarily just one person but it's it's finding that person who you have that trust with so i was man this was like several years ago that i was talking to uh, a hollywood friend about this about why i like uh the tim burton batman so much more than i like christopher nolan's batman and a lot of it is because he starts more as bruce wayne than batman and the person who Vicki Vale falls in love with in that first movie is Bruce Wayne. And then when he lets her know about Batman, there's a trust that's involved in that exchange of information that I thought was really sexy. Even even when I was a kid and I watched that movie, and I was like, that's what I find really appealing. And that kind of ties into your idea of like the community and sort of families or even found families is the trust that comes out of those relationships is a level of intimacy that can either be sexual or non-sexual, depending on the context, but mm-hmm. I find very romantic. Yeah. Um, 
and that's that's something that I really look for in what appeals to me. I'd say that that's like a consistent of all the different things that I read, of all the different genres, all the different sort of gender balances and whatever the hell is going on in fan fiction these days. It's like, that's what I really like out of a relationship is that trust. Mm. So and it's, it's so simple and it's so hard to do well without mm. it being like either codependent or, mm. or cause there's, there's an equality with trust as yeah. well. It's like, you're trusting me and I'm trusting you. Yeah. There's respect there too. There's respect. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the unifying thing for me that really like makes a romantic piece of fiction click on, yeah. on any number of levels. So, mm-hmm. and you can you can have a contentious relationship and like be really aggressive and kind of angry and fighting. This I could go off about like how Homestuck has sort of changed my notions of like what constitutes a romance and sort of ways of expressing romance in like a bazillion different ways. Mm-hmm. But. Um, you know, the sense of, like, rivalry and the romance of rivalry, there being a trust level as well in that. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's it's you're pulling from the sort of shonen jump rival tradition that turns mm-hmm. into BL slash or whatever. It's not just I want to kick your ass. It's that I want you to be stronger as well. And I trust you to, like, to kind of know those limits and to help me become a stronger person as well. Super hot. <laughs> you know, I've been playing Dragon Age Inquisition, and one of the cool things in the first Dragon Age, because of course there's romances in there, is you could have either a friend romance or a rival romance. Mm, yeah, it just changes. Sounds the... good. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, I don't That's know if I've Dragon Age too as well. I haven't played uh, Origins, but uh... oh yeah, is it in two? Yeah. yeah, yeah, I like two. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, having those more. You know, you use the word intimacy. That's it, mm-hmm. it's funny that that's such a shortcut, but it's like. Take the lust aside for a second. Like, that's usually a factor. And in real life, that's usually a factor, too. Because mm-hmm. you can have, like, all the, you know, the best friend in the world, but you just don't want them romantically for whatever reason, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's sexuality or whatever. But, like, mm-hmm. let's put aside how hot they are or how much attracted or, like, describing in detail how incredibly attractive they are to a mainstream maximum number of people audience or whatever. Right. You know, the way romance novels are like, oh, she has red flowing hair and full lips and whatever, the white and skinny, like, all that garbage. Put it aside and be like, yeah, are these people connecting in an intimate way? Right. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, like, you know, not to insult people too much, but if in the first chat, if the first time your main character and some attractive dude of the gender that person's into is introduced, if the first thing that comes out is, wow, that guy's handsome, or wow, she's beautiful, I know you're going to give me kind of a weak love story, like 90% of the time. That's kind of like... Kind of a red flag. What what it means is that, okay, well, the author was like, okay, I'm going to hook these two people up. Or sometimes in like a dating sim, it's like, oh, well, that's one of your options, you know? And it's like, well, you know, we can assume that these people are all attractive enough to get together. You know, just like, just like assume that unless one person's actual personal development has to do with accepting their body or the way that they look Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, having like kind of outward personas versus inward or whatever, unless that's like a really, really major theme of your thing, don't describe how attractive people are. Never describe how attractive people are because (laughs) people will just, yeah, like people will just figure it out. Like, you know, and even if you have somebody who's like the popular guy or the, the, you know, queen of the school or the kind of like antisocial nerd or whatever, just like assume everyone's attractive enough to get with everyone else in your story unless it's a major plot point that it's Mm -hmm. not. Yeah, yeah. And then just kind of like, like if if the first thing you're going to say about this guy is they're attractive because you want to make sure that people understand that winning that guy or that girl is a yeah. is a prize then you're really going about it the wrong way and it, it's so shallow right like we have this 
we have this weird cultural narrative about what's attractive. But we use this word attractive. That means, attra- like, attracting someone else. What a huge can of worms that is, right? Like, but we use this, with, we combine it with traditionally attractive. Mm-hmm. And it means, like skinny white person, you know, who's blonde a lot of the time or whatever. How many people in this world who are not that type of person who have sex all the time with lots of people because everybody wants to have sex with them? Like, it's just not fucking realistic. Now, there are definitely cases where you meet someone and the first time you're really attracted to them that you're like, wow, this is kind of a thing. And like you said, it can be a part of who that character is. Like, you know, um, there's that joke in 30 Rock about, like, the guy who John Hamm played was so handsome nobody was ever honest with him, so he was, like, mm. secretly terrible at everything because everybody would constantly compliment him because he was just so attractive. Like, there are really great ways that you can kind of integrate that into a character. But, yeah, like like Becca said, it can be kind of a red flag that it's like, oh, God, this is, like, you know, this one guy who's, like, oh, so much more attractive than the rest, where it's, like, that's how their their first... Like, first impressions aren't even important at all. Like, mm. you should be developing their love story over the course of the story. Some of my favorite is somebody who's, like, wow, that person's really attractive... Or I hate that guy. Or, you know, whatever. Because you have the, he's really attractive. Or I'll never sleep with that guy. You know, the two (laughs) versions that turn into love story. And then that doesn't become the love story. I like the fake out with that. Because there are plenty of people you meet in real life. You're like, wow, that guy's hot. Or that girl's hot. Or I hate that guy or whatever. And you don't get with them. I mean, like, how often is that the exact, the only person you're going to comment about. And that's the person you're going to end up with at the end, you know? Mm -hmm. Usually it's more like you go to a couple parties. You're like, I really like that person. Sometimes because of something. Sometimes despite something, the way they look or, you know. Just let's take let's stop equating lust with love and mm. yeah or even just because I feel like a lot of the time it's not like they're basing the romance off this so they just feel like they have to check off the checkbox yeah like you know you just got to make sure that everybody knows this person's hot enough yeah. to be a prize mm. you know and it's just kind of it's kind of gross and what's interesting is that that is a really common trope in femme friendly media romance novels shoujo they do this all the time. But what I'm interested in is fandom doesn't do that. Because, like, we talk about where the industry is moving Mm -hmm. as we kind of, like... And partially this has to do with the audience, right? The audience is growing, discovering what they want. The fact that shipping has become such a thing, such a huge thing, makes me think that this is where the industry is kind of moving towards. And as I mentioned kind of earlier in the podcast, that I think context is so important to as a part of hotness. That, like, context and hotness are really entwined in femme-friendly media in a way that... It's less so in stuff that's sold to men um, and how I think those things do do better, you know, in the same way that it's like, oh, I just read this epic story. The, you know, a simple sex scene between these two people would be so hot just because I know who they are and I know mm-hmm. them being together. Um, for anybody who reads Bossada, like, the sex scenes in Bossada are, like, fucking amazing because you know them so well. Like, the, you know, obviously the main character in Bossada is beautifully developed, but, like, the love interest, like, I should the Red King, who was, like, bachelor number one for a while and like manga bachelor number one in japan for a little while he was so well developed and like he was kind of like an egoist type that was so fucking layered and so you just really want them to get it on so badly because like you know how happy it would make them and you know how they would deal with each other's insecurities and like you know what i mean it's so it's like you build all this and then like then it can turn sexy or whatever but like opening with a sex scene I think is kind of risky and not something that a lot of femme friendly media even does the way that a lot of stuff for men is like look at him nailing this lady earlier like it used to be in a 300 whatever page romance um, a lot of them would build up and then like page 200 maybe they'd have sex now it's kind of getting earlier now it's like sometimes within the first few chapters well they also have sex more than that was actually one of the things that really i read the first outlander novel um Mm -hmm. because i wanted to watch the tv series yeah like 
she does the like convenient arranged marriage trope like less than halfway through that book and yeah. then they spent like the next third of it just banging because <laughs> like I yeah. was not expecting that until the 75% mark and instead we get it early and then yeah yeah so well because I think that like the, the bigger that like Outlander is is that what it's called Outlander yeah. the one where she goes Outlander. back in time to Scotland yeah. right yeah yeah um, that's a good example of kind of breaking out of some of the, you know, it's very much a romance novel, but it's still mm-hmm. breaking out of the tropes and a little bit bigger than a lot of them are, like, you know, mm-hmm. more expansive. That, yeah, like, why why can't she have sex a bunch of times? Mm-hmm. Like, we don't have to have, like, this one yeah. trope where it's Well, like, I mean, the thing is, like, it can mean different things at different yeah. points in the story, yeah. you know? And, and I it think totally that it's moving toward that a little bit more anyway, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. More, uh, and then you're giving yourself even more context for each successive love scene, mm-hmm. because... When you have love scenes before it, you know, like, in the same right. way that normal people's sexuality generally morphs as they sleep with people, because they, you know, yeah. it influences your sexuality, usually, <laughs> when you're sleeping with somebody. <laughs> it expands it. Expands yeah. it, yeah. And you start, like, we discussed this in Calevia, which, uh, this is a little bit of a spoiler for Chapter 10, which just came out, but, like, now there is sex in Cal- Desk in Calevia, and how <laughs> there is kind of, we were discussing the romantic development of these guys, and how, you know, we were looking at sort of... Onorobo had done these different versions of the pinup, like that sexy illustration of Toivo and Demian, and she had a couple different options, and one of them was like, this picture's really hot, but I feel like this would be after they've already had sex once. Like, you know, it doesn't look like they're not they're not comfortable enough to be at this level yet, mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, like, Emily Compton has a little bit of plans for some of the, you know, I'm obviously, like, pushing her, like, more smut <laughs> for me! You know, like, I push her in that direction, but we've been discussing a little bit of that. There's a big difference between the first time and the second time, and then there's, like, the old married couple stage, mm-hmm. and then there's, like, the seven-year itch, and, like, these are all important aspects of sexual development, and even just within an individual relationship, separate even from your personal development. Let's explore that. That's hot, you know? Look mm-hmm. at all this content. You get different sex scenes that are diff- hot for different reasons, mm-hmm. you know? Like, that's my extended thoughts anyway. Do you want to add anything, Becca? I don't know. You've you've said a lot of you. So she is. Leanne has incredibly developed opinions about this stuff. She's like, we need to do a pinup for for awake. What what should they do? And I'm like, kissing. And she's like, no, but if their left hand is on the, uh, just like like this incredibly <laughs> developed opinion of how to make a picture sexy, and I can't even match it. But it's usually based on what the context of that. Th- that's why I think erotica and pinups and stuff that we've had are difficult because I think all of them should be custom tailored to the people to the audience, to the context in which they are being shown. So it's not just, like, those three poses of the naked girls for men and stuff. It's like, mm-hmm. who are these characters? What stage of their relationship are we representing them in? Um, as people will see in the pinup calendars that we have. We have a, so it's like a digital pinup couples calendar that's coming in January, and there's also a print version available. We did a little bit of a rough, um, we were asking on social media, what are your favorite couples running in Sparkling Monthly right now? And we picked sort of the four mm-hmm. most popular ones. Um, and one of them was Tori and Colin, obviously. <laughs> obviously. So we were like, what What would be a great romantic pinup of them as a couple that would fit, that wouldn't feel too out of canon or too out of character, but also, you know, could have been either behind the scenes or after the end or whatever. And I think people are going to be very pleased when they see <laughs> sort of what we ended up choosing for them. And also, like, Tori and Colin are not good candidates for a really hardcore pinup, mm-hmm. right? Because that's just not really what people are there for. Yeah, that's not think. their story. They're yeah. they're really cute guys. It's a it's really, really great cute. pinup. Yeah. We we these pinups were great. And then we also we were doing a Tokyo Demons one and there was a coupling that I knew was sort of popular, but it ended up being more popular as a threesome. So we added a character, so now it's a three way <laughs> pinup. But it was easy because it was sort of like it was it made sense that it was it's like organic. Well, 
Mm-hmm. It felt organic, yeah. They were sort of like two love triangles, but there was the same guy in the middle of both of them. So we kind of picked which one was a little bit more popular, but he was going to be in the middle, obviously, with the least clothing on, you know, because like, he's the one that, I, you know, like... <laughs> Poor Sachi. Yeah, everybody wants Sachi to get laid somewhere. We actually got to a point where somebody was saying, I don't care who he ends up with so long as he's happy at the end. Just like, you don't even care the pairing, just that he gets laid. That was like the important part. So we, I, yeah, I take it maybe more seriously than I should, but... You just want everybody to be everybody to be happy, mm-hmm. and and with their their pinup erotica. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See, yeah. it's not I want everyone to be happy. It's I just want everyone to be happy. Oh yeah, happy yeah. Not the right word. Satisfied. Satisfying, yeah. yeah like... Satisfied with their pinup erotica. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that doesn't necessarily mean sunshines and rainbows. Because I think there's something really satisfying in in just the feels. Mm-hmm. So our our. Sparkler key catchword is feels. So feels, yeah. I personally enjoy miserotica, <laughs> like uh, miserable, <laughs> where people are like just they want things they can't have, or they're suffering, or their relationship is fraught with problems, or it's just like that beautiful agony that has a sexual component to it. Um, I like tra- not even necessarily tragic love stories, just agonizing kind of cathartic um, stuff like that. So yeah, like. A, a, a happy ending, I mean, I think happy endings are important because, you know, a happy ending doesn't necessarily mean satisfaction, especially if you're not at the end end yet, you know, like, I love that suffering so that when you get there, it feels like you really worked for it, yeah. you know? <laughs> so Tokyo Demon's fans. Oh, well, everybody, everybody, <laughs> everybody who's reading knows. that knows how incredibly miserable everybody constantly is, and no matter how hard they try, it's like, they just can't control... <laughs> Like, this is a toy, I think. You can't control your environment, dude. Like, <laughs> we're finally in book three where it's kind of about him. But, like, we have all these people who are, like, I'm trying to do my best in a situation that I don't have control over. How much can I control my own destiny? And the answer is, in little ways. But it's <laughs> it's not, not a lot, right? There's so much. You're a, a, you know, you're a star in the universe. There's so many things outside of your hand. But you can make, you can find your own happiness within this, usually. It's going to be hard. Sometimes. <laughs> if you're lucky. We're really not selling yeah, the series, no. but if some asshole doesn't kidnap you, well, that just develops you as a character, right? Like you've mm-hmm. got to after the PTSD gets t- dealt with. PTSD <laughs> is a really interesting component of love stories, though, and I think that you know, welcome again, to Hunger Games. Yeah, yeah, like, that, no, exactly. That, one of the things oh. I think is so great about that book is like books two and three are like fifty percent dealing with PTSD at increasing levels. Yeah. So. How interesting is that? Like, yeah. people, and it's not just saying, like, oh, it's a non traditional love story in the sense that, like, somebody who has, like, a mental illness or, or an emotional disorder or whatever the case being a viable love interest, but, like, think about how much more, how that builds into the love story, how mm-hmm. the stakes can get higher. Because now it's like, what if you get burned again? Like, can mm-hmm. you emotionally handle mm-hmm. that? Or is this somebody, you know, we were watching Silver Linings Playbook the other day, which. Mm-hmm. Would like they talked about like mental illness and how mm. they showed it through generations that it's like his dad has a mental illness. It didn't manifest in the same way, but you mm-hmm. can see threads of it. How come like he you know was the guy who got out of the you know the mental you know the ins- mental institute or whatever you know the court ordered. He came home and all his friends are suffering and they're coming to him and saying, "I'm I think I'm going crazy. Can you help me?" And it's like this is the guy that just got out on the quote unquote loony bin. But mm-hmm. like just because you have a you know you're struggling with something in one way doesn't mean you can't help someone in another way that you're not strong in a different way and say you know love is a really important component in that like people who have disabilities or 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 trouble they fall in love all the time you know and the the stakes sometimes are higher but they're always it's different right there's another layer of complication there and there can also be another layer of intimacy if you're you know somebody helped you through something or that you're you know 
it's all great stuff. I think just, like, the key, as Becca said, like, don't just be like, well, they're so hot, I'm going to get with that person. You know, like, <laughs> like don't limit yourself by so much of, so many of these tropes about what means love. Separate lust from love. Look at intimacy. Look at how they work in a group. Look at, like, the emotional and romantic development of an individual person over the course of their lifetime and within individual relationships and stuff. Like, I think those stuff really speak to our audience, the, like, femme-friendly audience, because of how shipping has happened and how fan fiction happened. That's the shit that people explore. They want to know, like... And that's why they do AUs. It's like, what if you were in another situation but you have these, you know, these things are appealing to you and it's still in another context. Now, oh, look, there's a different context. We can explore it in a different way, like, if you were up against this challenge. God, this also... Ugh, I want to go read fan fiction, man. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Got me all revved up for some good intimate... You know, I want to read about intimacy and, like, outside of this standard Hollywood, like, how hot mm. they are. They should bang and then we all get to watch. Mm. <laughs> Great. It's like, oh, that... So for some reason it's in slow motion love scene and oh, artistic oh, camera so angles they're the worst like Hollywood love scenes the oof, worst. it's just oh, it's so uncomfortable usually they're with your parents and then you know, just, most of the time one of them is either an asshole or a non-entity and you're just like yeah. I don't want to no turn it off <laughs> turn it off on that note <laughs> yes we should probably shut up now Thanks for listening, everybody. We are going to sign off, and we hope you enjoy. Let us know what you think. Tumblr, Twitter. No, forums are a good place. If you guys have... well. Um, we didn't really do much of a call for questions in this one, but, like, if you ever... Like, we have a bunch of threads that are about the podcast, and there's stuff you guys want us to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. I know that we've covered a lot of stuff that people have asked in the past. It uh, helps us decide what you guys actually care about mm-hmm. <laughs> listening to. This was a little bit inspired by... You know, we've been doing all these pinups and stuff, but also, the, like, you know, we went through the submissions pile again, too, that talking about things that, what we look for uh, as readers in addition to... What engages us, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thanks again, and say bye, everyone. <laughs> bye, bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.